You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Thank y'all so much. It is such a glorious morning, and I loved worshiping together just then. Like, when that bass was hitting, I was loving it. I felt like God was almost saying, like, you know, I'm stepping into your presence, and every time his foot would go down, I could just sense his surrounding us this morning. So, thank you for entering in. Um, This is an opportunity for me that I don't take for granted to teach the Word of God, and, and I take it super seriously. And But before I read the text for today, just as Brent was saying, I do want to acknowledge what today is. Um, I know that this day holds every every emotion in existence for many of us, women and men. Some um, on this day, uh, they may love it because their relationship with their mom was healthy and rich. But for some of us, today um, holds emotion, I would say, that is full of mourning because love has been lost or dreams have been lost or life has been lost or others are indifferent to this day. You may be like, I don't even know it was Mother's Day because somehow it it snuck up on me. Or maybe you're only here in church because you're here with your mother today. But no matter where you find yourself, I want to acknowledge your feelings in this space. And I hope that we will all find ourselves safe in the Father's arms as joy and sorrow do their dance in our midst and throughout the places that we may go today. So happy Mother's Day to all of you women. Whether you have birthed children or not, you were created by God to reflect his love in the earth to those around you. And I hope that you feel empowered today, every single woman. And I hope that every single man in this room is encouraged as well. So I'm gonna jump right into reading today's text. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. And we have been doing a sermon series on Ephesians, and it just so happens that Ephesians 5 hit right here on Mother's Day. If you're familiar with Ephesians 5, then that might make you laugh. Um, if you're not, then you may be hopefully a little more enlightened when, when I finish. So I'm gonna be starting in verse 15, and it says this in the Word of God. Pay careful attention then how, uh, to how you walk, not as unwise, but people that are wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ 
and the church. God, will you just bless your word this morning? I pray, God, for humility and love and integrity and fidelity as we approach the scripture this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I dive into this text completely, I wanna tell you a story, and it'll be fitting because it's one of my favorite stories in my own journey of motherhood. So you know those horrible things that we are asked, like the skills we were asked to teach our kids? Well, I don't know what came up in your mind when I asked that question, but for me, there's three that kind of hit me hard. One, potty training. Two, shoe tying. And three, teaching your kids how to ride a two-wheeled bike. For those, they're difficult for me. So when our kids were small and we were teaching them these skills, at the same time, Brent and I always felt a responsibility to teach our kids to listen to God, to, to try to hear his voice and to obey what he was saying. So when Anna Joy, she's our oldest daughter, I also have her full permission to tell the story. Um, when Anna Joy was very little, we were in a potty training season, and you would think that since she is our third child, I would have gained all the skills needed to teach her how to potty train. But, you know, the older two were brothers, and it's a little different potty training boys and girls. So honestly, aside from the inconvenience of having to be ready in every single moment of every single day at every single place when your child is like, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom like right now. You know, I gotta go, I gotta pee. Aside from that, Anna Joy was quite successful in mastering her potty training skills way ahead of the boys. So one night in particular, everything had gone as normal or, or so I thought, because we would teach them if you need to get up, I mean, you need to go to the restroom, you need to get up and go or you can come get me and I'll help you. When we get up the next morning, and Anna Joy and her entire bed were soaked, and I just didn't have the extra time in my schedule this morning to deal with all the things that come when you have a kid that's super soaked from, you know, going to the restroom in her bed. So Anna sits down in my bathroom to try to go to the restroom that morning, and instead of launching into like a lecture on what she should do maybe next time, I decided to ask her the other part of the skills we were teaching our kids, which it was, Anna, what did you dream last night? And she said, well, I dreamed about God. I'm like, you did? Well, what was God doing in your dream? And Anna Joy says, well, he was talking to me. And I was like, he was? I'm so excited, you know, because we're teaching our kids to listen for the voice of God. And I'm like, well, Anna, what did he say? And she, with her little tiny self, she looked right in my face and she goes, he said, pee in the bed, Anna Joy, pee in the bed. <laughs> So I stood there and I'm like, well, okay. Because we're teaching our kids to hear the voice of God, so she actually obeyed. So I'm like, well, good job. Good job listening to the voice of God. He spoke, she listened, and she obeyed. So I want to say the same thing to us today. Well, we must hear God's voice above all others. We must long to walk in the truth that he's given us, and we must not be shaped by the voices all around us. So I ask you this today as we approach this subject, can we try to hear God's voice above all the other voices that may have shaped us when it comes to biblical womanhood? And also, if you need to go to the restroom, you just get up right out of your seat and you go right there to our wonderful bathroom facilities. If God says to go right now, you listen and you go. So as we dive into this look on biblical womanhood, I also wanna ask you men not to tune out because looking at what God says about women cannot be understood without peering into what God says about men and vice versa. Now I just spent eight weeks in a class in my graduate studies on this topic and to be completely honest, I wrestled and struggled through this class. 
Discovering so many ways humankind has distorted and perverted God's heart for women was painful. And trying to unravel culture, history, and bias from this topic is nearly impossible for some. And to say that almost every society has oppressed and mistreated women is an understatement. And to say that the church at large has complicity in the marginalization and abuse of women would not be false. So I wanna take us quickly on a journey today that I slowly and painfully took these past couple of months. So before we go back to one of the most misapplied scriptures in all the Bible, which is Ephesians 5, I wanna go back to the beginning of everything. So we're gonna go to Genesis. I wanna do the creation story in a very quick, quick, quick nutshell. So let's go to Genesis 1. Here in this chapter, God has created the earth and he ends that particular series with creating his supreme creation, humankind. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible says, God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Genesis 2 then recounts God's creation of man and puts on display the brilliance of God as he forms man from the dust and breathes life into him. In verse 18, after placing man in the Garden of Eden, God states that it's not good for man to be alone and that he would create a helper corresponding to him. It was the very first thing in his creation that he finds imperfect or at the very least incomplete or unfinished. So God then puts the man to sleep, removes his rib, and forms a woman. Now I want us to see what man's description of the woman is in Genesis 2:23. Here's what he says. This one at last is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. So rather than trying to find a hierarchy in the creation story, readers can see in the Genesis text a stress on how alike the man and woman are. Man exclaims that the woman is finally a creature who corresponds to him. So to me, it seems like Adam was pleased. Would you agree? But what does God mean by the role of helper? First of all, it indicates that the man needed help and a woman was going to fulfill it. Amen and amen. The English word helper, unfortunately, does not do justice to the Hebrew word ezer, which is a much more empowered word. It means this, to help, to rescue, to save, and to be strong. So listen up, ladies, because our identity is wrapped up in this point. Weightier than the word helper, ezer has a strength to it. This word is often used for God in Hebrew scripture and denotes one who was equal to the task man had before him. Whenever Ezra appeared, it was always within a military context. God is his people's helper, defender, deliverer, sword, and shield. He is better than chariots and horses. He keeps sentry watch over his people and with his strong arm, he overthrows their foes. So based on the Old Testament's consistent usage of this term, it only makes sense to conclude that God created the woman to be a warrior. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we are just that. In God's sovereignty of giving the man headship, this does not mean that the woman's role as helper is inferior to the man. The man's headship is for the woman's protection and the woman's partnership is for the man's good. Man and woman are to be a reminder of God's abundant provision for each other. 
God intended for humankind to exist together, procreate together, have dominion over the land together, and to worship him forever together. Tim Keller says it like this, they are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they are differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. If I had all the money in the world, I would have bought you all a puzzle today. Because if you have one piece of a puzzle missing, it's super frustrating and the picture's not complete. But puzzle pieces, when they fit together, form a perfect picture. So let's keep going with our creation story. Surrounded by the beauty of the garden and in the unhindered presence of God, the woman finds herself face to face with the enemy of her soul, the serpent. Genesis 3 said he is the most cunning of all the animals and he approaches the woman to have a conversation with her with just one thing in mind, to lie and to plant seeds of doubt in her heart about God because our enemy is always a liar. That's all that he knows how to do. And in her weakness, Genesis 3, 6 says this, the man was there with her, so she succumbs to the temptation, she disobeys God, and she sins. And Genesis 3, 7 says the Bible, I mean, Genesis 3, 7 says that immediately their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked because sin had brought shame. And for the first time, humanity, for humanity, they retreated to cover themselves and hide from God. So when sin entered the world, the relationship between God and his creation was ruptured. And at this point in the creation account, God pursues the man and the woman, and they were hiding, and he says, you know, where are y'all? He knew where they were, but he needed them to see where they were. So they come out from hiding, and he issues them their consequences. Now, here's something that's important to note. God only cursed the serpent. He judged the man and woman, and there were consequences for their actions, but he only cursed the serpent. And in Genesis 3, 16 through 24, before he banishes them from the garden, he issues these judgments. There was a lot about grass and thorns and thistles to the man. But here's what he says to the woman in verse 16. And I want to emphasize this because I think this is the crux of the misunderstanding and where we have gone wrong or misunderstood and misapplied scripture in the area of biblical womanhood. It says this, your desire will be for your husband yet he will rule over you. So this is a result of judgment, and this is not God's desire, and I want us to see what this really meant in the original language. When it says that your desire will be for your husband, it means this, that from that point on, the temptation would be for woman to control her husband. And when it says that his desire will be to rule over you, the temptation for the man will be to oppress the woman. And these would be in constant tension. But it's not a tension that's to be settled into because it's not a tug of war. We don't live in a tug of war. She is not to control, nor is he to rule over because they are to work together. So if this is true, how have we gotten so far from the truth? Why is it that men and women struggle so much to walk in their God-given identities? Why have we reduced manhood and womanhood to a bunch of non-biblical gender roles and responsibilities? Why do we elevate certain roles of women over others? And why do we struggle to allow one another to operate as God intended? Why do we struggle to be what Jesus prayed we would be, which was one? As a result of the fall, Romans 5 tells us that sin entered the world for everybody through one man, Adam. We are born into a sinful state and that in order for us to walk in righteousness, Romans 5 tells us that grace and redemption would come through the one man, Jesus. 
Jesus literally changes everything, and it will take the work of the cross for us to fulfill the call that God has on our lives as men and women. So now let's jump back to Ephesians 5. I would submit to you that it is absolutely impossible to properly apply Ephesians 5 if you do not understand God's original intent of creating man and woman in Genesis 1 through 3. And if you approach Ephesians 5 improperly, might I suggest that you may be upholding the post-fall order as the ideal, which is control and oppression, instead of God's intended purpose in the creation order, which is corresponding partnership with unique roles. I mean, I almost thought, like, I'm going to ask that question and then just, like, walk off the stage and let you just meditate on that thing. But instead, I'm going to teach you this morning why we need to land in the original intent of the garden. So let's ramp up to verse 22. Verses 15 through 20 are instructions on how to live in godliness inside of all of our relationships. And because Brent's gonna teach on this later on in our Ephesians series, I'm just gonna like do an umbrella of the overarching theme of these verses. Paul is charging his listeners to be wise and not foolish, to not be time wasters in their actions and witness of truth to others, to not allow themselves to be controlled by any substances or habits that will lead to reckless behavior, to find joy in worshiping the Lord in the church, and to always be people that refuse to grumble but instead have an attitude of gratitude. And lastly, over all of that, he charges the listeners to be filled with the Spirit because it is a work of the Spirit to walk in right relationships. So from this, Paul says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not just a tolerance of each other, but a mutual submission. And from this assumption and understanding, excuse me, Paul goes on to pen verses 22 and on. Wives, you submit this way. Husbands, you submit this way. Children, you submit this way, on and on and on if that makes sense. Submit one to another in verse 21, and then he starts to detail to everyone how they're going to submit. But everyone is submitting. Everyone is submitting. So pay attention to what happens in your body when I say this next verse, and all of us, like men and women, because many falsely assumed principles in this verse have been applied and massaged into many of the ways that women are treated, whether married or not. So here we go, verse 22. Wives, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. So women, does it make you angry? Does it make you cower? Does it possibly trigger past abuse? Or men, did it cause pride to rise up in your soul? Was there an arrogance that creeped into your attitude or a, man, I hope she's listening, type thought? Or maybe it makes you cower because of an overwhelming sense of responsibility that just enters your heart. Whatever it is, rest assured that many of us have a visceral reaction when we hear it. And here's why. Because this verse has been weaponized. It's been weaponized and it's a shame because it's intended to serve our relationships, never to sever them. Listen to this, I just learned this in my class. In the original language, the word submit is not even in verse 22. It's not even there. The action of submitting mutually is assumed from verse 21 and applied through the passages that follow as an element of mutuality, not hierarchy. Authority is not given to rule over, it's given to lead. And submission does not mean inferior, it's given to help. 
And both of these roles are given for the benefit of the other. John Stott says this, divinely delegated authority is never to be used selfishly, but always for the others for whose benefit it has been given. So let me prove this to you. Back in Genesis, before the creation account, before sin messed everything up and caused everything to turn upside down, the Trinity already was. John 1 tells us that Jesus existed with God from the start, and we see the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 hovering over the earth from the beginning of time. The Trinity is our model for right, mutually submissive relationships. God the Father, the loving, covenant-keeping God, sends his son Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. He sends him to earth to heal the rupture between mankind and Father God. And in this relationship, all the Father does is to glorify the Son, And all the Son does while he's on earth is to live in humble submission to the Father to bring glory to him. And now the Spirit exists to minister and bring glory to both of them. So here they are in a trinity, the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the Spirit glorifying both of them. It's the ultimate example of same value, different roles. And no one would argue that Jesus' submission to the Father made him less than. Tim Keller says this, In the dance of the Trinity, the greatest is the one who is most self-effacing, most sacrificial, most devoted to the good of the other. Jesus redefined, or more truly defined properly, headship and authority, thus taking the toxicity of it away, or at least for those who live by his definition, rather than by the world's understanding. It's a good quote. And it's the same for us, family. We all have equal value before God with different roles to fulfill. All things work as they were intended to work when we were each other's biggest cheerleader. Just like we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Men, you are to be women's biggest cheerleader. And women, you are to be men's biggest cheerleader. It's like we need to be outdoing one another in cheerleading of each other. So I want us to look at two examples of men who championed women in a culture that oppressed and marginalized women, and that's Jesus and Paul. I wanna frame it with this first though. Many of us have been taught a false doctrine about biblical womanhood and I believe it breaks the heart of God. What happens when we may have been taught for years about um, womanhood that looks opposite of how Jesus and Paul treated women? What do we do when the women should submit, women should be silent, women should not lead, women should stay in their place, all the women's shoulds and should nots? What do we do when those are thrown around flippantly or made the brunt of jokes? Or what about the pressures of culture? What about the historical track record in this nation of the oppression of women that has taken on numerous forms from those that were enslaved to unequal rights and opportunities to continuing systemic issues that directly impact women? Might I suggest that we fix our eyes on Jesus first and let's see how he treated women. So to set the scene in first century Israel, no people were more oppressed than women. They were considered second-class citizens, they had virtually no rights, no respect, and no voice. They were the property of men and owned by them. They were allowed little or no formal education. Jewish women could not speak to men in public, they had to veil their faces, and if they didn't, they were subject to punishment. They were mistreated and their husbands could divorce them for any reason and discard them like trash. They had no political power. They could not read the Holy Scriptures or be in the presence of a teacher. Listen to one first century rabbi, Eliezer. He says this, 
Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her lasciviousness. That attitude toward women is despicable and it's portrayed in these rabbis' words because women were completely oppressed. And it's of note, the more important and powerful the relationship for God's kingdom, the more attacked and demeaned by the enemy. But here comes Jesus. Jesus was a Jew himself, but he operated in a different kingdom. Jesus treated women consistently with respect, dignity, and compassion, and he allowed them to learn from him as his disciples. Jesus drew near to the marginalized, oppressed, and outcasts of society, which oftentimes were women. When the religious leaders would apply the law legalistically to women in sin, as they did with the prostitute that busted into a dinner gathering at a religious leader's house, she fell down in worship before Jesus one night. Jesus would challenge those religious leaders' very critical thoughts, and he brought value to the woman who was worshiping. When culture would place a woman outside the camp, if you will, as seen in Luke 8, Jesus not only acknowledged and healed the woman, but he also dignified her in front of her accusers by calling her daughter. Jesus intentionally took a trip through Samaria and had a conversation with a woman in John 4 that not only brought healing to her life, but also salvation and saved her entire town as she became potentially the first evangelist. Jesus honored his mother at the end of his life, and this one makes me emotional. As he died on the cross, as he was in pain, he looked down at his mom and he brought her provision through John. He made sure that she was gonna be seen and cared for in his absence. And there are numerous examples that I don't have time to speak of today, but I want you to know that Jesus encouraged women to participate in his mission, and they showed their loyalty to him until the end. Now I want to look at Paul. Paul, who has often um, bore the brunt of misunderstanding regarding the role of women in the family and church, actually engaged in radically countercultural practices in treating women as co-laborers in the gospel. Paul deeply valued women and their contribution to the early church as they were strategic in the building up of the body of Christ since the very birth of the church in Acts. And as the apostles preached and pastored, that was like a tongue twister, as the apostles preached and pastored, women were among those who were converted and began serving as co-laborers and went on cross-cultural missions. When Paul spoke to the churches in his influence, he often addressed women and men the same regarding those that were persevering in persecution. Paul did not see women as inferior. He saw them as valuable. And numerous women were acknowledged by Paul in his letters. Let's look at some of them. Tabitha the seamstress was known for her good works to draw others to salvation. Mary exhibited a great faith in leadership as she hosted and led a church in her home as they prayed for believers that were being persecuted. Paul acknowledged Lydia as an example of a hospitable woman and Priscilla as a fellow worker. Not only does he label Priscilla as a fellow worker, she's listed first before her husband in the scripture, and he acknowledged both her and Aquila as leaders. In the letter to the Romans, he acknowledges Junia and her husband as apostles, which was a governing position in the family of God. Paul worked to make sure women were not judged more harshly than men in a culture that absolutely devalued women. He leveled the playing field in his teachings and leadership by cheering on women and his influence, and he spent his entire ministry teaching on unity amongst the church and combating the pervasive, patriarchal, cultural norms that surrounded him. Paul did not hate or mistreat women. He loved them. 
And I believe that if Paul were here today, he would look at every woman in here who is seeking to serve God with her gifts, desiring to bring glory to God with her life, submitting to the Spirit's daily leading, working to educate herself about the truths of the word, and striving to do this in partnership with the church, I believe he would say, keep going, my sister. Do not stop. Do not cower. Do not bend. Stand up tall and you lead with strength. That's absolutely what Paul would say. So men, do you find yourself in a place of cheering on women like this? I hope you do. But I know what you're up against. I have had very few men cheer me on like this, but for the few that do, their words are life to me. Find yourself cheering someone on, not putting them in a box, or marginalizing their voices. Fight hard against the perversion that authority means aggression and tyranny. And at the same time, don't shirk your God-given assignment either. Resist passivity and strive to be meek. Dedicate your life to becoming emotionally healthy and loving women like Jesus loved women. Be respectful and gentle, encouraging and kind-hearted. Serve your family and center your activities around Christ and the church. And my fellow sisters, can we strive to be women of strength instead of strong women? May we not find our confidence in anything outside of what God says about us. Because listen, life can be so difficult. It's difficult, it's hard. Comparison to one another tries its best to seduce us all the time. And there is an immense pressure on us to perform and live up to certain standards. But sisters, do you realize that oftentimes the face in the mirror puts more pressure on us than anyone else? But we do not have to bow to anything or anyone but King Jesus. He defines us and he is in control. You see, no matter what you find yourself doing, I wanna remind you that your identity in Christ is a place from which you should function. Our identity is who God says that we are. And this is the same for everybody in this room, male and female. And it does not change no matter what for those that are blood-bought children of God. He says that we're chosen, that we're loved, that we're purposed, that we're intended, that we're created, and that we're valuable. Your platform in your life is what you do, and it will shift multiple times over your life. I mean, and there's, there's a lot for us to do. Don't be duped by Proverbs 31 that you have to do all that stuff in one day or even a work week. Proverbs 31 is truly a picture of the body of Christ for women or maybe a woman over her entire lifetime. But it's not for you to do all at the same time. Nobody could live up to that pressure. If you do get your identity mixed up with the platform that God has placed you on or you mix up who you are with what you, what you do, you will always be found wanting and in danger of idolatry. No relationship, marriage, job, or child should be the center of your world. When we must center ourselves on Jesus, not our responsibilities, so that we function from a place of rest. But rest assured, sisters, single or married, young or not so young anymore, God has called you, and he has called me, and he has called us to love him with our whole heart, to love people selflessly, and to minister graciously in the earth, 
whether managers, administrators, teachers, janitors, lawyers, doctors, soldiers, athletes, students, mothers, sisters, friends, aunts, and fill in the blank, whatever you are. We are all called to incredible things that God has prepared for us to do. I recognize that cultural pressures and norms have often been either restricting, oppressive, or demeaning, and certainly a major obstacle and contributor to the understanding of biblical womanhood today. But please let me belabor this next point once more because it hammers home who we are together as a church. Genesis 1.27 says that God created women with absolute equality to men because we're made in his image, all of us. Women are not less than, but co-heirs of the kingdom alongside our brothers. We are never enough within ourselves, but we are all we need to be when we're found in Christ. We must resist the temptation to control as this often comes from fear and insecurity. But in the face of a culture that often demeans women in overt and covert ways, we hold our heads high and use the gifts that we have been given to bring glory to Christ and Christ alone. You see, we all belong to each other, and not because of anything, except that God has made us one in Christ. We are the church. Being members of one another means that we have a vested interest in our fellow members using their gifts productively. <coughs> Can we resist the long-built systems that pit us against one another, one another and instead honor and love one another by seeing each other how Jesus sees us and uses us? a family on mission together. Now I think I've made it clear that motherhood is not the only mark of womanhood, because it's not. I know the pain that has come to many in my life, and maybe in this room, when in your life it's been made to seem that marriage or motherhood was a position that we have to strive for. And I'm sorry, because that just is not biblical. Eve was named mother before she ever had any children. She was the mother of life. All women are called to nurture and produce life from themselves, whether through natural or spiritual birth. All of us. But seeing as today is Mother's Day, I wanna take the time to say this. I love being a mother. I love it. I love to hear my kids call my name, mother. Mom, mommy, mama, dude, and the latest is bruh. <laughs> bruh. Being a mother is awesome, and probably the platform of mine that has brought me the most joy, but it is only part of who I am. And just that, because God ordained me to be a mom, but he doesn't call everybody to birth children. It's not all that I am. I will say this, if you are a mother or a father for that matter, it's important to know that your children are your very first and most important disciples. Your children are watching how you act and what you say. They are taking notes of your life and they are assessing if it is consistent with all the areas of your personhood. It is very important to remember that we have been called to teach them about Jesus and to show them the love of Jesus and to lead them to the cross. And if I had to summarize this message with all of the many tendrils that are attached to this topic, I would say this with the biggest smile on my face, that debates will never cease around this topic 
Biblical scholars are entrenched on both sides of biblical womanhood, all while kingdom work is to be done. I'm like, let's just do the work. The Bible lays out a plan for women to have dominion and to serve alongside their brothers. Jesus and Paul supported, loved, and elevated women over society's oppression of women. And the kingdom of God is a paradox and confounds the world's wisdom, and it should in our culture. The area of biblical womanhood is not an exception. And to God be the glory to the lives of his daughters on the earth until he returns to reign forever. Church, can we agree that generations behind us are watching can we agree that we cannot afford to get brotherhood and sisterhood, leadership and submission, authority and humility wrong? We can't afford it. How we relate to one another, how we serve one another, and how we champion one another reflects Jesus to the world. And with this, I close. Jesus was the picture of ultimate authority and ultimate submission in one person. His submission to the Father's will shaped his ministry. His leadership of the disciples impacted the culture and changed the world. His service to mankind had him washing feet and eating with sinners. His authority over sin trampled and defeated death. His love for the Father sealed authority and submission together as he willingly went to the cross as a sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty for our sin and took the wrath of God upon his body so that our debt was satisfied. In this act of love, the tearing of his flesh, he tore the dividing wall of hostility for our unity. Paul reminds us in Galatians that no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.